Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of The Beat. I'm Brendan Quinn from The Athletic. Nick is slacking off this week, shoveling, doing God knows what. So I'm in control of the show, so you get to listen to me talk to a buddy from back home, the great Mike Jensen, Philadelphia Inquirer, longtime friend, uh, one of my favorite people in the world. How are you, Mike? Doing great, Brendan. Uh, you're not bartending anymore, right? I'm actually standing at a bar in my in my place, but nice. <laughs> it's 11.30 in the morning. I haven't cracked any yet, although this would be like a good time. If, if people wanted the full experience of us, of our bullshittery, I feel like we should both probably have cracked some before this. Probably should have. Uh, let's, let's wait for the second half. Fair, fair. Uh, the, the thought behind this was, so last week, Mike, uh, Nick and I did like a mailbag with our listeners, right? Uh, which fielded a bunch of questions and somebody submitted a John Cheney question for, you know, some pass along some stories on John Cheney. And so I offered a few up and not surprisingly, the response to the mailbag was all about the Cheney stories. And uh, I told the one about John walking in on a, on Martelli's pregame talk in like 99 or something like that, where he went into the wrong locker room at the Palestra and uh, just right in the middle of Phil's pregame pep talk, Cheney showed up with a donut and coffee. And uh, I think I told a couple others, or maybe it was that and one other. But everyone's like, well, that was just great. That's amazing. That was hilarious. So I said, well, we can probably turn this into a whole show if you guys really want it. So let me bring in a man who was intimately close to some great Cheney teams. And you got stories for days. We've talked about them on the phone for years. Uh, but I figured if people liked that, they would love you. So here you are, my man. Covered him his last nine seasons. I've, I've been at the Inquirer through since since 1988. Uh, but I covered Penn, then I covered Villanova. So I was covering the other team, the other guys, and then I covered the last nine seasons, which included two Elite Eight, his last two Elite Eight of his five Elite Eight runs, uh, and the last one against against Izzo and Michigan State. But yeah, I mean, I, I've been spending the last week just it, you know, when you covered John Cheney, you just had too much, too much material. <laughs> it, was the, it was the best problem you could ever have in sports writing. Uh, and the last week was like that. People say, Well, are you gonna talk to him or him? It's like all the tales, they're 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 all there. So uh, it didn't really matter the name that what uh so we're, we're gonna share, swap some stories here and then we'll we'll while we have Mike here we'll weave in some Michigan and Michigan State stuff from his perspective on on Phil to uh, remembering the what was it 2001 Elite Eight Michigan State right example. right uh, you're so, at the so, national championship out there right 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 so we'll get to those but first of all you know what do you have a, a good story this week that came up? Um, that you might have just completely forgotten about that kind of brought things rushing back about what it was really like to kind of be in John's presence. Uh, just that, that personality, you know, kind of outside of the, you know, the chain, the, the Calipari stories, right. All that stuff that has been done over and over again. What kind of brought you back to what it was like for, for you being around him? What, what brought me back first was so, so, uh, John died uh, on, on a Friday, you know, Friday, however many days ago, 10 days ago. Uh, yeah. And I wrote, I wrote the obituary, talked to a bunch of people. 
and what and then I had to write a, a, a column about what it was like to cover John Cheney. So in in doing that and not being satisfied with what I had put to paper uh, yet or put to to Word file, uh, Google Doc, uh, I, I I didn't sleep well. Uh, and and then so I was still looking. I was still searching. Um, you know what. Searching through my own memories, I, I put the word Cheney into my emails and just to see, go back and see what popped in. And 20 years ago, popped in my notes from a practice uh, from from it was actually 19 years ago, 2002. Uh, they had just gotten hammered by Alabama. I don't remember a thing about the game, uh, but I remember this practice. They were about to play Memphis and, and Dewan Wagner, sure, uh, sure. an out of town reporter from Memphis who I knew already was in town. Let's go to practice in McGonagall Hall. Uh, Who was that? Jeff Calkins? Uh, Zach McMillan uh, was the ah, writer okay. at the time. Jeff was gotcha. a columnist. Yep. Uh, and, and so he was up. So we were sitting in McGonagall Hall. They played at the Leochorus Center by this point, but they, they often practiced at McGonagall Hall, and I was up there. And John was just going off on his guys, saying things that I can't put in the paper and I'm not going to put on this podcast. Uh, but <laughs> Hilarious. Uh, from, from afar, if you weren't the target, you were laughing out loud about what he was calling these guys, his big men, who were just apparently too soft for his taste in Alabama. Uh, and, and then he realized what he was saying, and he looked around. So I found my notes. Here were, here were my verbatim notes. I remembered one line. I didn't remember another. I, I'd forgotten that he had said, if there are any women in the gym, please leave. Uh, so he so he goes there and then he's and he notices his eyesight was really bad at yeah. for distances. I mean, if he could see the opposite basket, it was a miracle. Uh, he could not tell who was up in the stands at McGonagall, which is only a little four thousand seat gym. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said, "Who's up there?" And, and one of his assistants said, "It's Mike Jensen, coach." And he just said, "Sitting up there like a couple of monks," you know. <laughs> And, and, and the Memphis reporter was like, I, you know, I don't know if we're going to get much out of him. And I'm like, ah, he'll be fine. And, I'll, and practice ends and he yells up there. He says, what are you doing? Sitting up there incognito? Which was a just John Cheney phrase that he would say himself. Only John Cheney could get away with it. And, and the reporter from Memphis was like, sure enough, he's, he's okay. Let's get out and talk to him. And we yeah. down and kind of shot the shit with John for, for, for half an hour. Um, and, you know, that 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 kind of was uh, John. He lets you in, uh, you know, covering him. If I always said that if he had afternoon practices, you know, typical afternoon practices, the access would have been so different. He would have been running out of there. He said, I don't get time for you. And he's <laughs> going to get get his food, get his groceries, going to eat. And he said he would say, call call me later. But you'd be catching him at 11 o'clock and maybe talking for an hour then. But in the morning, if you went, they'd practice from six to eight. The first half hour, the assistant coaches would get all the running in they could because they knew when when John stopped things, it was going to stop and it was going to stay stopped for like half an hour. But the practice Mm -hmm. around eight, eight o'clock, just on a dime for classes, he would go into his office. You'd wander in there and, you know, you'd be in there for it might be an hour. It might be two hours. It might be a secretary, Mrs. Davis coming in saying, 
coach, you got a phone call. And I'd say, I know there's no phone call. I'll, I'll, I'll get on here. And, you know, because he just <laughs> would not kick you out. And you just had, had stories. You couldn't get, you know, the word MF in the paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but as, as I wrote, he never said the word off the record. He just, he just went and, and, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, so the material was, was, was all there. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. It is wild how many parallels there are between John and Izzo in in a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just that kind of, two of them yeah, like off you, you need to have a level, of, a level of relationship to kind of translate certain things. And, you know, Izzo every once in a while will drop a, off the record, but sometimes it's, you know, wait, are we having a conversation or are you trying to tell me? (laughs) (laughs) When you were going through that with John, um, I imagine, because I only caught the very tail end of him when I got out of school and was actually covering teams. I covered like basically like his last two teams, if that, if I'm trying to even remember. Um, But obviously grew up watching everything. Um, But with him could you always kind of tell when he was telling you something that had a, like, I'm telling you this because I want you to write it. Cause I'm getting a message across whether it was social justice or whether it was, you know, Marty Collins needs to get his head out of his ass or something <laughs> like that. Right, like, could you right, always right. tell when the, the purpose behind what he was saying or were you, was it a guessing game a lot of times? Uh, it it was a, a little of both uh, gloriously. <laughs> Uh, because I always said, you know, I, I left space in game stories for Cheney to be Cheney and I would not try to explain it. I was, that was not my job to translate because it was, it was way better. Just John off the cuff. Uh, and, and that said, for, so for messages, yeah, you usually could tell what was really on his brain. And there was only one time he called Mike Kern, the daily Philadelphia daily news, uh, beat writer for Temple, and he was the beat writer from like 1991 through through the end in 2006. He was the the, the senior guy. Uh, we we got along great. Uh, we did the beat slightly differently, but um, you know, I the, the respect level was highest, uh, and and I think it was mutual. Uh, but one time, only one time, I think Cheney asked for our presence, uh, so we go in there. And the uh, head, I believe he was, I don't know if he was interim head coach at Cincinnati at the time, um, but Andy Kennedy w- was, was there. He was recruiting a player named Keith Butler uh, who ended up going to Temple, uh, but he was recruiting against, let me think, Bill Self. Uh, who were the other? It was, it was like four heavyweights. I want to say Self was at Illinois at the time. Uh, John Cheney, DePaul, uh, and I can't remember the fourth, but it was somebody, somebody pretty good. But he put on paper uh, why Keith Butler should go to, to play for him and not go to these schools. So he had these schools 
broken down on paper. And he faxed it to the kid. Well, the kid's guy was like a temple guy. It was in Philadelphia. He was going to school at, you know, Lutheran Academy. And so <laughs> those, those papers made their way to Temple's office. And, and I can't imagine the first, you know, words. At, I can't imagine the first words out of uh, John Cheney's mouth. So, so he called us in. So he hands us the papers. We're reading these papers. Temple, you know, can't coach big men, blah, 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 blah. Nobody's in the NBA. And, and they weren't, you know completely off, you know, right. <laughs> you know as negative recruiting goes, you know, just bullet points. And I was like, hey, yeah, okay. They're, they're kind of like cliches, but, usually true. Yeah. But in the meantime, John's commentary was just, you know, between the MFs was just, just railing to the point. And, and I wrote this, I, I, I didn't get the specifics because I did it one paragraph, but I, I actually asked, John, is this on the record? Because I knew he was handing us these papers. I knew the papers were now ours. But is this on the record? Saying, so what do you think I brought Junior for? You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know that, there's the right answer, obviously. And you know, the, the next day, Tony Kornheiser had me on his national radio show, <laughs> trying to trying to get me to blister John for 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 what he said. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm doing my job. You're the columnist. You want to blister him? Go. You know, here's here's what you did. So, you know that, that now that wasn't normal, John. And just like another similarity with Izzo, I think, uh, and and plenty of these coaches, if John wasn't happy with something, uh, he uh, wanted to get it off his chest mm-hmm. uh, to you personally, one on one. Not not at not a press conference ever. I don't remember him ever doing that, but one-on-one, like I said, like once a year, I would get calls from his, what was essentially his director of basketball operations, best whoever did it, uh, John DeSangro. And he'd say, Hey Mike, got a, got a, got a second for coach Cheney. And, and I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew, I knew, <laughs> you know, he wasn't calling to compliment me on an adjective, you know? Yeah. Like, okay. <laughs> and the first time he, I got that call, it was not on the temple beat yet. I was on the Villanova beat. And I had written that the Atlantic 10 was a second tier league. Uh, hey, Mike, got a second for oh. Coach Cheney? Because <laughs> yeah. at that point, he was, you know, rolling. Calipari yeah. was rolling. So this would have been, let's say this was 95 or 6. Uh, and, you know, so Calipari hadn't gotten to the Final Four yet, but was just about to. Cheney was right there. Your Hawks were, were doing fine. Right. But, but I said to John, John, there are more than two tiers. You know, there's three tiers, four tiers, five tiers, six tiers. Ah, you know, I, I made the mistake of debating him back. Uh, right. And I learned a lesson that he first, he wanted to get it off his chest. Uh, and when I wasn't giving him the space to do that, he had the commissioner of the Atlantic 10 and Speedy Morris write letters to our sports editor saying, saying what a horseshit story that was and what, what an outrage it was. <laughs> he did not write a letter. They wrote the letters. So I learned, okay. You know, then my practice was hold the phone literally six inches away from my ear. Mm-hmm. You know, give him the space to rant. He would get it off his chest. He wasn't looking for a correction. He wasn't looking for a second story. He wanted me to understand the facts. And then he would still be calling me an MF or by the end, but laughing doing it. And often his points weren't bad. I mean, I disagreed with him on 
that second tier point still do. But other times it's like, man, eh, man's got a point. Well, I can't, I can't believe that you would have disrespected, you know, the likes of Kwame Evans and who would have been at Xavier at the time, like Lenny Brown and all the, the Atlantic 10 of the mid nineties. This is like, you're cutting right into my heart with, with this. No, I was disrespecting the Atlantic 10 television package. Thirty starts. <laughs> oh, so you were disrespecting Linda, Linda, Linda Bruno? Yeah, Linda had just taken over for Ron. I checked the years, actually, when I was looking at it. I, I, knew, it was, I knew it wasn't Ron Bernovich who had been the uh, – but, it, yeah, it was it – was. Well, that, well, that leads into a story. I think I told you this one last week because I just heard it for the first time. But this was told to me by a coach who will go nameless here and know it is not Phil Martelli. But uh, <laughs> was told the story of uh, a a Big Ten, or uh, I'm sorry, no, geez, that shows how much time has changed. A, an Atlantic Ten off-season coaches meeting, right? So all the coaches get together. Uh, who knows where it would have been? You might remember at the time where uh, probably in Philly because headquarters were there, right? Could have been anywhere. Could have been Philly Airport or in Boca Raton. Who knows? Right. <laughs> so it's the the annual get together, right? So all the coaches are sitting around a table and who knows who this, I'm not sure which year it would have been, but you know, the likes of Cheney and either Cal or Bruiser and Mike, Mike Jarvis and blah, blah, blah. Sitting around the table for their annual meeting, Linda Bruno at the head of the table. Um, before they get started, Cheney stands up and says, there's something that has to be addressed before, before we get going here. And the whole room stops and everyone's waiting to, oh, what could this possibly be? John goes, we got to do something about the locker rooms at Fordham. Those things are old enough that George Washington himself took a shit in those toilets. <laughs> and, and it wasn't, it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't wrong. And I'm pretty sure those bathrooms at Rose Hill probably still haven't been refinished to this day. George Washington probably took a shit. And, and, and it wasn't even just the locker room. He had to go outside. Uh, right. And so pissing with the public was always, it would drive him crazy about the Palestra and it would drive him crazy about Fordham. And he would have a manager standing outside. So naturally, I, I love that when you told me that. Right? <laughs> so Brendan texted me that. Uh, so I immediately texted that to like four A10 people, including Linda Bruno, the commissioner, you know, just to, just to, just say, hey, you remember this one? And and Linda texted me back and said, it gets better. She said, the meeting ended up, he continued on about pissing with the public. And, and he said that, that in that meeting together, the other coaches, he, he said, people looking at me, they're going to be out yelling at me during the game. They're looking at me then. They can see I don't even need two fingers to hold myself up anymore. <laughs> She said she lost complete control of the meeting before it had even started. And, and Linda loved John. I mean, and, you know, that, oh, part, man. You know, that was just, John, I mean, he just, he was, you know, sort of a street poet. He was a street philosopher, but he was also a street yeah. poet. So he would say things in ways that you had just, you know, right to, literally to the end of his life would say things in, in ways you had never heard, but just say. I mean, literally, the last time I wrote a column talking to John Cheney last June when the world was on fire, city protests were all over mm -hmm. the place, 
he, he talked to me about it. And then, and just at the end, I said, how you holding up? He said, I'm, I'm the last limb on the tree. He said, the wind blows, I'm gone. Yeah. Mm. That was friggin' John Cheney, you know, right, yeah, right, man. right to the end. He never just said, I'm doing okay. Yeah. He, he spoke in metaphors. And sometimes people think, oh, he's using basketball to, to help with lives. And that was true. But he also was using these metaf- metaphors to bring it into basketball. That was mm-hmm. really what the, those 45-minute lectures were about. Uh, and he and he was like just as a storyteller, like not only the turn of phrase, but the way he would deliver stories. You're just like, man, I mean, not only have you filled columns with your quotes for years, but if you wanted to have written them yourself, you probably could have because his, his ability to deliver stories was incredible. I remember his uh, Big Five Hall of Fame enshrinement where he goes on, you know, a John Cheney speech and he's just freelancing. There are no notes in front of him and he's just kind of waving his arms and he's just seeing people in the crowd and telling, you know, a Raleigh story here and a this story there. And uh, he, I think his, his daughter had had a child. So his would have been his grandson. I think that's right. Um, but he has a grand, he has a new grandson, right? And so he starts telling this story and he, he goes, yeah, I, I, I told her you need to name him John Cheney, the fifth. You have to keep this going. But then she she came back and said, oh, you know, there's a, there's already enough of you out there causing too much trouble. So I'm not going to go with that name. Right. He gets a good laugh out of the crowd at the palestra. They, he could have said whatever. Right. And gotten a cheap laugh. But the real punchline was right at the very end. He just goes, yeah, you know, so she named him. And I don't even remember what it is anyway. And then he just like went right into the next story. And it was just like just perfect delivery. Yeah, Come writer. Right. Yeah. Just, just he- nailed it. <laughs> and at, at the funeral service uh, uh, this week, Mark Macon brought that up, that he asked him, you, you ever write down things for speeches? Because he, he would go with them to speeches. He said, I never do. He said, I just have a theme. And I know when I've wandered off, I, I need to go back to the theme. And so, he, you know, there was a little more method to, he wasn't one of these guys. When you talk to him, you know, he wasn't just a remember when guy. Right. Plus, he didn't always remember when, correct? Didn't, I, mean, <laughs> no, I swear, Eddie Jones and Aaron McKee were on every team he ever played. <laughs> For every story, you know. And Mike Kern was, had a much better memory than me. He's like, no, that wasn't them. They were gone five years at that point. <laughs> so. the, uh, the thing that a lot of folks can't appreciate were the old seats at the Palestra, media seats. Uh-huh. When you would literally just be right behind the bench, which now would just be absurd. I mean, I, I don't know. The closest I've seen to it is at Illinois, where you're basically behind the scores table. So if you sit at the end of the scores table, you are, you know, you're probably 15 feet from the head coach, which is pretty good. You know, you, you get some color, but you want to talk about color. Like the old press row at the Palestra was literally a bench directly behind. Like now it's where managers would sit and you're just and right in it, man. You could usually hear in the huddle. So, you know, which is pretty good. You know, that, that's, that's helpful for a guy trying to add some color to his story. Uh, and, and also, as, as you remember, John Cheney would turn, if he turned left, he could turn toward the end of the, toward the baseline. Uh, and, and shout at a player. But if he turned right, all he could see was you. Uh, so, 
So, you know, any, anything, any commentary he wanted to add about the refs or his, his crappy players or anything else, he was telling you. Uh, and, and he knew he was telling you. I mean, he knew you know, it was these guys, he, you know, the same guys who, you know, were at his practice the day before. It wasn't, it wasn't mm-hmm. any big deal. He didn't care. But you were also there when, like, the closest John came to – I was always concerned that he would not pull, um, you know, hit another player from another team, not pull a Woody Hayes. I always mm-hmm. thought he would throw a forearm shiver to one of his own players. I was concerned <laughs> about that. But, but he never did. You know, right. he never did. John, John had more ball. He was, he was not a bully. Uh, mm-hmm. But the one time when he was ready to do a Bobby Knight, he, he picked up a chair uh, and, and it was like three feet in front of us. And I can still picture, I mentioned his ops guy, John DeSangro, grabbing the bottom of the chair because the chair was lifted on its own at that point. It was its own singular chair. And that chair was going flying, except that John DeSangro, Right there, right in front wow. of me, grabbed it and threw it, put it back down. It's like, uh, yeah, there was enough color. For That's pretty good. I didn't realize until going back and real uh, rereading um, Gary Smith's profile on John, um, which Mike Sielski, your colleague, columnist at the Inquirer, uh, wrote a story going back over that profile with Gary. Um, right. But I, so I read it and I mean, I might've read that like back in college, but I had no recollection of it. So I went back and reread it and it's of course brilliant, but I had no idea of or remembrance of John going on Nightline with Ted Koppel and Arthur Ashe to um, be a opposing voice to NCAA's, you know, Prop 48, Prop 42, Taking on Arthur Ashe, right? Taking on Arthur Ashe head to head, saying, you know, what? Why, yeah. why is it? Why is it the universities want to educate the educated, right? Shouldn't the job be to educate the uneducated? Why are we making it as difficult as humanly possible to get in the guys who need the education the most into these schools? And you know, Ted Koppel's the moderator, but Ted Koppel was very much kind of nodding along with Arthur Ashe, saying, you know, yes, these, these. Um, restrictions need to exist for this and this and this reason. And then Cheney, you know, obviously being John, not taking an ounce of that bullshit and spitting it right back and saying, and calling it for what it was. And, you know, Ted and Ted Koppel and Arthur Asher sitting there kind of uh, wide-eyed, right? Because how do you argue with John? Um, that's a losing proposition in all ways. Yeah, we've already so, gone there. Yeah. Yeah. But like I, I was thinking about it. It's right. It didn't matter whether he was talking to me or you or Arthur Ashe on television. <laughs> you got John. You know, you, you asked for John. You you're gonna get John. Uh, but like imagine that today, Mike. Like yeah. Whatever you know, Arthur Ashe at that time being, you know, was a iconic figure. Imagine a college coach now sainted figure. Yes. College coach now sticking it in his eye saying, you know, no, this isn't right. And doing so on a program like Nightline, like that's just so far beyond what we see now. Yeah, yeah. And that's where from the first conversations I had with John, it was eye opening. And it was a similar kind of conversation before I was covering his his beat about how, you know, if I said, well, if somebody's choosing between Texas and Harvard and they go to they choose Harvard, you can get that. And he was like he blew that out of the water because here, here was somebody who had been told to go to the wood shop in high school uh, mm-hmm. and his high school coach, he always gave credit for saving him 
uh, Sam Brown, my white father, he called him, my great white father, and, mm-hmm. and just convinced Cheney's stepfather that he, he should go to college, um, public league player of the year in Philadelphia, uh, was recruited by exactly zero big five schools, uh, and went to Bethune-Cookman, you know, got an education, uh, clearly, uh, that so his views came from his life. That Gary Smith story, it came out in 1994, by the way, just after Cheney went after Calipari. So the whole country who hadn't out, let's say outside Philadelphia, who is like, who the hell is this guy? And right, Gary right. Smith comes out with this cinematic portrayal. You want to know who this guy is? This is who this guy is. Right. Uh, this this upbringing that was, you know, that you know, you or I would not have have survived. Never mind, mm-hmm. thrived uh, where most people would turn would just live a life of rage. He channeled right. that rage into empathy, uh, mm-hmm. and it became his life mission uh, to reach down and, and pull as many up as as he could. Uh, and it even struck me, even in a basketball sense, that last time I talked to him in June, he threw in a quote for me that I'd never heard him say. Um, that Jim Maloney, his late great assistant coach, said to him. You know, all these coaches are supposed to be great, great coaches. Why don't we give them the, them the bad players? Let's see how, how good they are then. And he just, <laughs> he just, and that it's trying to fit the theme of his life, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's, and, and he immediately then said, I had good players, I had good players. You know, he didn't want to <laughs> offend his players. You know? But all right, so speaking of the game, like everyone, especially out here, right? You identify the matchup zone, right? You remember the, the, the few players, but, can you offer some um, kind of insight into how John helped change the game, um, how he coached um, in a very different way? I remember an old Dan Lebowitz quote. Um, it was when – it was during Cheney's suspension, during the Goongate suspension, and, you know, Temple lost soon thereafter – and Leibowitz said in a, in a press conference, I can't, I can't do what John does. John, more than anyone, he can see 10 things at once in a game. Right. And I always thought that that was a really interesting way of kind of describing probably the way that his mind worked, right. that he could process the game in that way. You don't need to look at one thing. He saw the whole. So for someone who, who saw all those practices and stuff like that, how did that actually like translate into how he taught the game? and, and um, you know, built his system over 30, 40 years? Well, a few things. I, I always said that John would harp on the same five fundamental things for four years. So it, it, I think that was the hardest part about playing for John Chaney. Is that you knew those things by the end of freshman year. In fact, at Chaney State, one of his Chaney players told me the first day of practice – he assumed you had never picked up a basketball. He just started every year. Literally, he, he yeah. assumed dribbling, shooting, passing. This is how we do it. Uh, so anyone knew this is how we do it. Anyone who said, coach, I didn't know, you know, this is how we do it. He was very much, you know, the old wooden, John Wooden philosophy of, you know, teaching how this is how you put your shoes on. You know, mm-hmm. he was, that was him. But then, but he, he kept at that, the five things. Uh, my first practice covering him, I walked down the court and he was thinking about footwork. He showed, he said, put your, put your left foot up a little further. And he showed me how you attack that front foot. 
because you couldn't get your ballots in time. It was, it was, a, it was a fundamental. And I was a bad JV high school basketball player. And I, I knew what a matchup zone was, but I hadn't been taught <laughs> those things. You know, sure, sure. simple fundamentals. And I always say those five fundamentals that he harped on were the five things you need to be a pro. So that his guys, I know very good players who left other programs who still had to be taught some fundamentals in the summer between college and pros. Well, those were not Temple players. They, they were ready um, for, for, for those things. So, you know, I mean, anyone who ever played for John Cheney, covered John Cheney, sat within 50 feet of the bench of John Cheney, knew that it, the matchup zone was what he was famous for. And we can get to that a little bit, but no turnovers was his thing. That just turnovers just absolutely drove him crazy. He kept track of turnovers before the NCAA kept track of turnovers. There were no turnovers in box scores, uh, but that was his thing. And, and I, I remember his late, great uh, Cheney uh, assistant coach. He, he, before Temple, uh, he, he didn't get to Temple until he was 50 years old. Uh, he didn't get to Cheney State until he was 40 years old. He coached <laughs> 10 years there, uh, won a Division II national championship before uh, moving to Temple. Um, but same thing. And, and he was just, you know, the stories would flow from Cheney. His assistant coach said he'd actually break out a paddle and paddle his guys sometimes. And he said, yeah, he'd paddle a guy for, for turnovers. And he said, yeah, every once in a while, he'd break it out for the new guys, you know, just, and, and just his, his sole belief was get a shot. Like Nate, Nate Blackwell said, it didn't even matter how. It was your job to figure out how to get a shot up because he believed if you could get 10 more opportunities in a game, 15 more opportunities in a game, then your odds of, of winning that game went up. And then when he threw in a crazy defense that in the NCAA tournament teams really did, couldn't, couldn't prepare for, never mind, didn't know, right. that, just could not prepare for it. It was, it was a very effective combination. As a lead into your thoughts on the matchup zone, uh, I recall, uh, I mean, Ch like Cheney's thought on the matchup zone, I think is similar to kind of Bayheim's, where it's like you either, you're either all in or you're out, right? Like you can't half-ass if you want to run a zone defense properly. Like it, it, it kind of needs to be your base, right? Well, yeah, it was his base, but it was a way different base than the classic Bayheim. Oh, for sure. You for sure. His, his matchup was barely a matchup. In fact, Nate Blackwell, I think, had been waiting till John died to tell me the origins of the matchup zone. Because uh, he, 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 said, he said there was no matchup zone. We were until they started. He said Howie Evans invented our matchup zone. He was mm. a point guard on their number one ranked 1988 team, a great backcourt. Uh, and Howie Evans uh, was a guy who could have. 20 assists and one turnover against Villanova in, in the uh, biggest game of that season. But they were playing defense, and I think they were playing more of a man-to-man. -man. Uh, they had they had matchup zone, too. I mean, matchup zone wasn't invented by, by John Cheney and, and uh, Jim Maloney uh, brought it, uh, elements to it, uh, just a, a brilliant assistant, brilliant tactician of assistant coach. But in this game, according to Nate uh, – Howie Evans realized one guy was killing him. So he told Mike Rieswick, another player, you stay with that guy. And it was basically, they, they went to a box and one. And Cheney called a timeout, according to Nate. 
what are we doing? <laughs> and, they, and they told him. And he goes, oh, keep doing it. <laughs> he said that was another part of John that, that people really didn't understand. Yeah, it was his way of the highway for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, when, he had, when someone had an idea that seemed to be working, he would incorporate it. And their base matchup was called Rover. And, and in those days, they had a, a, a big man named Tim Perry went on to the NBA uh, and, and had great defensive skills. And so Tim Perry was essentially – Nate's version is that this defense would not work today with all this five-out stuff. Um, but at the time, when everyone had a big man, Tim Perry could take that big, would stay with that big man and take it out of the game. Then they would look at everyone else, and whoever was the guy, they had someone stay with that guy. Then everyone else would match up. And so when you're trying to figure out what they're doing in there, it would get complicated. And they had one, three, one versions of it. And they kept, and, and, and Nate's not trying to say that they didn't work on a matchup zone over the years. He ended up being an assistant coach in later years. So they, you know, they fine tuned it and, but they, and they often fine tuned it to a, to an opponent. Didn't he said, and, and I agree with this. Every time I went to a practice, they were work, working on offense, you know, they, they would <laughs> just sort of throw up. Okay. You're covering him. You're covering him. We're doing this right? You know, as a, a scattering report, but most of their time they were, they were working on those other things that I was talking about ad nauseum uh, to, to get them. There. And the other thing is that when they had talent, they were, they were willing to, they were willing to go a little bit, as, as mm-hmm. he also told me. You know, John wanted to be able to play any style. He was going to do his style, but he wanted he didn't want his players to be confused by any trial style. In other words, he said, if they're going to foxtrot, you got to know how to foxtrot. Right. That, that was that was part of it too. So that's great. The uh, um, <laughs> John Beeline told me the story of I guess it would have been when he was at Richmond, Cheney. First time they ever had an interaction. John Cheney walking up to John Beeline and John's obviously looking at him wide-eyed as people tend to do the first time you meet John Cheney. And Cheney just puts his finger right in the middle of Beeline's chest and looks him square in the eyes and just goes, man, you got a lot of balls running that one three one Because, you know, when you're coaching, you coach zone. That's that's all people talk about is your zone, right? It's, it, it is. It's a bold move. So, uh, yeah, that, <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the stuff later in the career, um, what did it – like what maybe don't people understand about what was kind of going on with, um, with John late, uh, I don't know. It, it, you mean when they stop making the tournament that, those years? Yeah, they you know they stop making the tournament. Right, the stuff goes down with St. Joe's with with sending the goons, and it it it, it was always kind of. I talk to people like you. I talk to people like Kern and and, and Dick Girardi, and there is there was that that fear at the end of caricature, right? Where it's like you know John, you know don't reel right. things in find a way so what was it like kind of covering him at those at that time where it did kind of go sideways and and you got a sense so he he made the tournament lost to his own 2001 uh that was their last ncaa appearance i always believed that that fifth final eight got him into the hall of fame that that same year that mm. he was front and center on people's minds he got in the hall of fame uh, and, that, and that team by the way needed a 
pump fake and a foul call in the semifinals of the A-10 tournament just to get in the NCAA tournament. Lynn Greer, mm-hmm. uh, pump fake uh, against GW. Tom Penders apparently tore, you know, th- there's a hole in the Spectrum locker room that didn't exist uh, the day before. <laughs> um, but Lynn Greer got the call, made all three free throws. Penders was gone to the locker room. Um, they, they beat Bruiser. If, 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 I don't, if I'm not pulling Cheney and having my ears confused – I think right. they beat Bruiser, Flint, and UMass in the final. In Bruiser's last, UMass, uh, he you know, must have played in the NIT, but knocked knocked him out and, and probably knocked him out of a job. Uh, right. I think I've got that right. So anyway, so after that is what you're asking about. I, I got a sense covering the team that the fear factor of John went down some degrees. It wasn't mm. gone. But instead of him being, you know, like I said, he got the job when he was 50. So here is this fearsome figure to his own players. I mean, like his star player, one of his guys, I remember telling me a story about how the first year, uh, it was either first or second year, and you got on the court in the morning. If you only had one sock on, you got on the court. Uh, And two of his players uh, including one of his stars, Ter- Terrence Stanbury, went on to the NBA, um, didn't get on the court. Uh, they, they were five minutes late. Uh, he made him run for two hours. And, and all he would say, oh, you want to be a superstar? You know, that's like the only thing he would say to him. Yeah. So that was John, you know. And, and, and right. I mean, it's like if you didn't have your hat on getting on the bus, he would go berserk, they would say. So and there was genuine, you know, that was John. But by the end, so now we're talking 20 years later. So now he's 70. He's more of a grandfather figure. Right. Player. So it's, it's the same words, but it wasn't quite the same. Mm-hmm. Recruiting, there's always a question, you know, how long is he going to go? And not that recruiting, I mean, he still had players that went on to the NBA late, but he didn't quite have the depth of, 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 of talent, maybe. It didn't quite fit. Um, so there was sort of all of that combo. So, and, and it was, I mean, they didn't drop, you know, completely off the table. I mean, it was still, you know, Lynn Greer and David Hawkins, Marty Collins went on the NBA. I mean, you know, Michigan fans, you know, might have vague recollection of, of some of those names, but sure. uh, they're, they're, you know, still real, real basketball players, but um, did, didn't quite have it. So I always thought there was that. And, yeah, the Goongate. So Goongate, you know, Phil Martelli was was the opposition. St. Joe's. Uh, apparently, John was convinced St. Joe's was running illegal screens. That was uh-huh. that was bugging John. He said something about it on a conference call. Uh, family members in the hospital, so I actually didn't cover the game. I was at the Calipari game, but I was not at the Goongate game. Uh, but I was listening to it on the radio, and and then talking to Ray Perillo, the St. Joe's beat writer, who did cover the game. He had heard John talking about the little legal screens that day on the Atlantic 10 conference call and sort of mm-hmm. process that. He said, ah, he's not going to do anything. But as he thought, as he saw the game getting chippier, he said, hey, you might do something. <laughs> you know, I think my translation on that episode, uh, whether I'm right or wrong, was that when he – told one of his guys to kind of go in and get him. What that guy who was a sweet guy, his name was Nehemiah Ingram, but that yeah. guy ended up leaving the basketball team and playing for the playing as a lineman for the temple football team. So when, 
So when you tell even a sweet guy who is good enough to be a, an offensive lineman uh, in, in the Big East to, to make a move on somebody, he, he, you know, he broke a bone in John Bryant's hand famously. Uh, and, and to my eyes, uh, St. Joe's never quite recovered uh, their season. So it was more, in many ways, it was worse than the Calipari uh, right, incident right. because that just was a one-off. I'll kill you, I'll kick your ass. You know, it was, it was famous. Uh, but all sides could move on. Uh, mm-hmm. state, the, the state attorney general of Massachusetts, you know, sent, sent a letter the next day saying he would be arrested when he got back in the state of Massachusetts. But, you know, they, they disposed of that. Uh, but, you know, affecting another team's season, that, that was a little tough. So that was, tell me if I'm wrong, 2005. John's last season was 2006. Yeah. I, I think John knew at that point, um, you know, I, I don't know what the arrangements were with the school, but in, and John didn't want to, he, he didn't want to get a rocking chair everywhere along the way, but I, I, mm-hmm. he, I think he, he knew it was ending. So things end, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll leave it at that. The, uh, <laughs> the, the conclusion of that story though, is also a classic Cheney tale where right he and Phil don't they they don't speak for months right I mean Phil was livid at John right and obviously rightfully for so and uh, I guess it was you know Girardi approaches I think both sides saying you know you, you got to do something here so th- they cleared out Colleen's on the Parkway a restaurant that, that Cheney uh, which, which meant the two people who were going to Colleen's on the Parkway were, were, <laughs> were told to to move down the road but yeah, <laughs> yeah right yeah. There's like a yeah, like a mob meeting, something like that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And Cheney goes, you know, Cheney would only meet if he had his his proxy as a as a as a beat writer. So he brought Mike Kern with him. So he needed Kern, right? Girardi yeah. sitting on, on Phil's side of the table, and they hashed it out over a few hours, and then walked out, you know, arm in arm for you know, yeah, for, yeah, for at yeah, least yeah. for the camera, at least for yeah. the camera. Yeah, I'm there, I'm not buying that. The, the, that was not that was not true. Yeah, I mean, it was a piece of cord. They at least were on speaking terms. But the the, the best part of the story is that there was a camera outside. The two of them snapped correct. a picture. Oh, it was, it was then, a brilliant it, Daily it, News it, maneuver. No, there's <laughs> no question about that. It was a back page. It was really well done. Uh, and and the Daily the Daily News headline goes with "Let bygoons be bygoons." <laughs> <Yeah. Just laughs> doesn't get any better than that. It really doesn't. <laughs> and, and I'm trying to remember whether it was before or after that. Uh, Paul Arizon, basketball Hall of Famer, uh, died uh, in, in, you know, in Philadelphia, everybody knows everybody. So I can picture being out on the, out on the driveway at St. Kevin's for the, for the viewing line that just was endless. John Chaney was right in front of me. Phil Martelli was right behind me with his wife. Uh, John was alone, I think. They, they did not speak. For, and and mm. it was a slow line going, mm. going into that viewing, and there was no there was no speaking. So, and again, it it cost them, you know, probably a bid. You don't get those back. You only get a certain right. number. Um, so, you know, yeah, they. I think the respect level. Uh, you, you mentioned the respect level. You mentioned Dan Leibowitz. Um, he was a ten year, uh, probably longer than that. He was longer than that say 15 year assistant, uh, John Chaney, the last 15 years. Uh, 
as, as smart a guy as I have dealt with in college sports. He's now associate of the Southeastern Conference for, for basketball. Uh, so he, he, uh, he, he said to me, listen, it, it, it wasn't just that. He said John loved Calipari and loved Martelli and loved the rivalry and loved getting into these things. Uh, and, he, and, you know, that's what he sort of lived for road atmospheres and craziness and, and all the rest. I mean, that time, you know, it went too far. And so I think, you know, and, and it's, and even, okay, Calipari, I'll get to John Calipari at, at the funeral because he was fantastic. Um, five years after that, it was still, you know, 1999 after he went after Calipari in 94, I remember talking to John for a, you know, five years after going after Calipari and, right. and his line on Calipari was some guys are in a hurry to get to heaven, uh, which, you know, again, John sort of street poet. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't quite, it, it developed from that point, I would argue, to be a genuine affection for each other sure. uh, to the point that John Calipari and, and Bruiser Flint, they're having this hard season at Kentucky, right? They still Monday, Flew in Monday morning for the viewing, uh, or uh, among the first online, and then flew back for the afternoon basketball practice at Kentucky. Yeah. Uh, and then John Calvary sent a, a a really good, cool video that was played at, at service um, mm-hmm. and conversations, reminisces, and, and telling said, "Hey, listen, he, he hasn't experienced a rivalry like it since then, which is." something to say. And obviously he's preaching to a very specific choir, but he said, you weren't ready to play that night. You got beat. You weren't Mm -hmm. ready. You got beat. He said it was a great foundation for a young coach. Um, He also said, said, I was younger than you then. And John said, let's don't kick your ass. And (laughs) And Calipari concluded, like, he would have kicked my ass. (laughs) Very nice. So it was very nice for the the funeral. Let me. me, true. He would have. He would have. Oh, his rage? Are you kidding me? He would have. <laughs> Calipari and everyone else in the room, to, you know, Battle Royale. He wouldn't care. <laughs> so let me, the, the Izzo uh, portion of, of, of yes, uh, John's story, 2001. Uh, John, so five final eights. And they, there was a common thread among them that uh, uh, Temple often benefited from big upsets, like in a sweet 16, they would have an opponent because uh, number two Syracuse got beat by number 15 Richmond. And so Syracuse wasn't there to play them in the semifinals. Uh, Arizona lost to Santa Clara. Arizona wasn't there to play them in the semifinals. So, so they had that bit of good luck a few of those years, followed by bad luck within the next Mm -hmm. round that Mm -hmm. they never, ever played a final eight team that wasn't the highest possible ranked seeded team. They five years, they were one seed once and lost to Duke the first time they got there. They were number one in the country, lost to Duke, Billy King shut down, Mark Macon. Um, yeah. They lost every other time they, they played a one seed. They, they, they ended up playing. They, so they got a good, you know, they would pull off an upset. They would be number 11 Temple would beat number three Cincinnati, something like that. So they didn't, they didn't skate. They beat, you know, the, the year they got to Izzo at the end, 
They beat, I want to say, a six. They were an 11 seed. They beat a six seed, a three seed. Then Penn State beat Purdue. So Penn State was happy to be in the semifinals. Uh, they got that happy. You don't want to be happy to be there against Temple. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be happy to leave there, right? That's that's the way that plays out. But then Michigan State, it wasn't the great Mich- the Michigan State team of Cleves and all had was, was mostly gone. So this was Jason Richardson. I, I haven't looked yeah. at him score in a long time. Um, but they were the one seed. So that was the point that John always ended up with a one seed, whether it was North Carolina, Duke, Duke, uh, Fab Five, Michigan. They they just about had Michigan out in Seattle, nineteen ninety three, but uh, didn't close the deal. So, and this game, Michigan, maybe it wasn't a great Michigan State team, and and they got beaten in the national semifinals, uh, but. It was a good Michigan State team, and it was a better Michigan State team than, than a Temple team that barely got in the tournament. That was that year where you need the pump fake and the three free throws to get in. And, and Izzo, I just – what I remember so clearly was he was just sort of somber, I would say, that they beat John Cheney. I mean, they – I looked at the final score. I was surprised to see it was a seven-point margin. I didn't look at the box score, but seven-point margin because Michigan State – you, you never for a second thought Temple was going to win the game. Uh, Michigan right. State just kind of just sort of had had control of it throughout and and deserved to win the game. But Tom Izzo was so somber. It was like he, I, I don't want to suggest that he was conflicted. I'm sure he was not conflicted. You know, you're you're, you're you know, it's a dream to make the final four. And even if you won it all the year before, you're, you're going back. But he was clearly very sober about he had just he knew that he had just denied John Cheney his last chance mm-hmm. at a final four and how glorious it would have been for the sport for John Chaney to go to the final four. I mean, never mind the press conferences because Mike Krzyzewski <laughs> could have just seated his time. Gary Williams was going for the first year. <laughs> Lou Olson's wife had died. You know, those were the storylines. Okay. Everyone wrote the storylines. John Chaney would have just taken over and it would have just been you know, four hours of time uh, <laughs> and, and it wouldn't have been enough. Uh, and then you would have gone back to the hotel and it three more hours of job and he was sat in his room, whatever. Uh, but it, th- that did not happen. But I always was struck by Izzo and, and there've been so many, you know, Izzo has been seen from so many different angles in the years since then. But, uh, you know, as a Philadelphia guy that, that always stayed with me is sort of, you know, humanity for lack of a better term at what had just gone down that day. Sure. And, and I mean, there is a degree of, of parallel where I think Tom was 45, maybe when he got the head job at Michigan yeah. State, right. you know, right. so he was an older guy, right? And he had already done certain things in his career, but because of his age and perspective, probably, yeah, was cognizant of that fact, as opposed to, you know, if some 38-year-old coach who knocks out an old John Chaney, right? He's so damn wrapped up in making his first Final Four. Might not be totally, you know what I mean, in tune with what's really going on. Sure, he lived some life himself, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I've wondered, what what do you think about that? When you talk about guys like, you know, Izzo, especially in the state of Michigan and, and his presence in the Big Ten and, you know, obviously nationally, and guys like John in Philly, um, I do wonder in the next 25 years, you know, are we going to have these kind of totemic figures 
who, because guys change jobs so much, you know, younger guys, like how many guys are going to have this kind of institutional uh, presence at places? Cause you know, you, you can pick any name out of Philly in the last 30 years and find a way to weave them around John Chaney. You know what I mean? Like, even if they didn't play for him, you bring up, you mentioned Bruiser, like Bruiser grew up going to John Chaney's camps, right? Then he played at St. Joe's and played against Chaney's teams. Right. Then he went and coached at UMass and was an assistant against Chaney's teams. Then got the head job at Drexel and coached against, uh, or, you know, he was head coach at UMass and the head coach at Drexel going against Chaney. Everything kind of, in a way, you could still pull through that lens. The, the pastor at John Chaney's funeral was a John Chaney Sunny Hill camper. I mean, you know, so, 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 you know, it's Philadelphia and, and Fran Dunphy made this point and I've always thought it that you can't name, uh, you know, when you say John Cheney and Temple, a fit between person and school, it was just, yeah, just, just that uh, it was just perfect. And, and for all the others, you can't really come up with a, a better combo than, than that. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I agree on, I mean, there's so many ways to, to look at that. Uh, John Cheney was, you know, the greatest character, but he wasn't the only character uh, in, in Philadelphia. I mean, I would literally see these national lists of five most quotable coaches in college basketball and Cheney would be on the list. But if I look at it, I was like, shit, we got five better guys than that in Philadelphia. I mean, we'll take our five versus the country. And we win. I mean, because I mean, seriously. I mean, brew. I mean, brew at Drexel. I mean, you know, brew on a larger stat. Bruiser Flint on a larger stage. You know, you would see um, very funny man. Uh, and, and and in the mold of Cheney of tell it like it is uh, in a funny way. Uh, in a in a edgy funny way. Uh, Martelli, you know got a national platform and, and took on Billy Packer in that national platform. Right. Uh, you know, so there, there was just uh, an, an interesting uh, collection of, of human beings. Uh, and, and I don't know why I, I bring that up other than the fact that uh, I can't, you can't say that anymore. You can't, you know, I don't yeah, know yeah. what the five most interesting coaches are in college basketball, but they weren't as interesting as, because oh, they were 30 years ago and they, and they can't be uh, because you'd have your cell phone out, out you know, photoing them. And, and, you know, I, you've asked me this, whether, you know, Cheney would work today. I think he, he could still work. I think he could still adjust to it, but he would have his practices closed mm-hmm. uh, and et cetera. So he'd be, he'd be alone just like Jay Wright has his practices closed. Right. Essentially you might get in for the last five minutes of them. And Jay Wright is as good with the media as anyone in the country. And he's, uh, and he's open with his thoughts as much as anybody in the, in the country. So he's, he is, you know, the definition of media friendly, um, but not to the point that you get to hang out as practice for two hours. Right. Uh, so, you know, the, the world has changed and, you know, so, you know, it, it, uh, you know, we all know that there's not the likes of, of, of John Cheney because he was so singular before, after, during. But even, you know, there's no approximations of him. I, I did separately as we wander and meander. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I did find it telling since he died 
how many coaches, how many black coaches who grew up on John Cheney just took time to say the importance of this man uh, in their own personal lives, not just the careers, but their lives. Uh, it was, it was, it, 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 that part of it was uh, kind of moving. Um, you said you last spoke to him in June or July, right? Last time for a column, last time we, we fully, I think I talked to him again after that, but not for, um, not for anything professionally. Yeah. So I guess before we get out of here, um, what were, uh, what were your kind of final remembrances? Um, where, 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 where's kind of John, you know, left in, in your, in your mind? You know, I mean, all of what we just talked about, but also again, just funny talking about, <laughs> I mean, just about food. He was a foodie. I mean, and he would just, and he was ahead of the game on, you know, stories. And I, I, I you know, the things that are, have just been said are, are front and center in my brain. So they spill out first. Like, so Leonard Stewart was a player for him. Now is the head coach at Simon Gratz high school. He said his mm-hmm. recruiting, he was told by his coach, Bill Ellerby, go right away. He said, I was recruited by all sorts of people. You know, I was a pretty high level recruit, but he said, go home right away. Coach Cheney's coming. He gets there and BMW is parked in front. He's a whole bunch of, whole bunch of neighborhood guys are around there. So that's, you know, he said, he said, nobody touched my damn car. Right. <laughs> he goes inside. Bernard does. And John Cheney's in with his mother and he had brought peanuts from the Reading terminal market. Mm-hmm. And they were going over her herb book about what herbs go with what. And he said, when he, I mean, he was barely part of the conversation at all. When he left, his mother said, you're going to trouble, you know, and, <laughs> That's sort of what I remember about John. It was always, it was always something just off to the side that was was funny and real and human. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I have I, I wrote in the piece about what it was like to cover him that I had a working theory that every time he thought he was crazy, he showed it. He knew exactly what he was doing. Right. Right. But every time you thought he knew exactly what he's doing. He showed you he was crazy. <laughs> so was so a, good. No so better good. man to cover, you know, and, and that's, uh, you know, it'll, you get to cover everything uh, in, a, in a city like Philadelphia, but uh, career highlight will always be a decade of covering chain. Just tremendous. That, that piece was so good. And when we were talking last week, I think it was right after I had read it. And, you know, I, I mentioned to you, I often feel, like I was kind of robbed by probably being born 25 years too late um, in terms of newspapers, in terms of a lot of things. Uh, And like Cheney is one of those things that I circle, right? I I came in at the very end and have- But you played golf with him at Walnut Green, which I I never did. And and so I'm jealous of that. (laughs) But that's, so like my memory, right? Guys like you, guys like Kern, uh, you know, you have this, that, that still the, the piss and vinegar kind of, you know, just classic Cheney, right. Of, of time or in, in my mind, it's the old man. And right. Right. Know, yeah. We, we got to play golf a few times uh, at, at Walnut Lane and he, uh, 
I, I realized in time he didn't actually like me. He liked my young eyes because he couldn't hit the ball for shit. And his cataracts are so bad. He had no idea where it was going. And after he hit it, he had no idea where it went. So my job was to find the ball. Um, but find the, the ball, the, get a story. That's, that's a fair <laughs> trade. The, uh, the best part of it was be going in, in the clubhouse. And I put clubhouse in, in, you know, big air quotes, you know, Walnut Lane is a, is a city course uh, to its core. It's what par 62 or something like that. It's a short track. Right. John, John played the flat holes and uh, uh, the clubhouse was a, you know, he'd skip oh, going across the street, right. If he wasn't hitting it well, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. If he wasn't hitting well, if he wasn't playing well, yeah. which was common. So right. he would, uh, but the, the clubhouse was a room basically. It had a card table and it would be John and guys just dudes, right? Guy, guy, you know, retired electrician and a retired bus driver and a retired this and a retired that. And this is where, you know, this guy who's in the Naismith Hall of Fame has made, you know, gobs of money in his life, gave a ton of it away, but, you know, also, you know, lived, a, in, lived in a different world from these guys, but also didn't. He didn't come from a different world as any of these. And it was just this, fascinating thing to watch these guys just at a card table and John just talking more shit than anyone. And he was just as real as it comes. Right. And like, that's will always kind of be the thing that was that I'm left with. And he, he didn't pick up, like he wouldn't play golf with the coaches versus cancer outings for years. And he didn't play golf. He would show up. He showed up at the wrong country club one time. He said, oh, man, <laughs> man, I don't know. Last time you sent me to Overbrook, you know, he didn't know he was, Half an hour away from Huntington Valley. Seriously, ask Martelli that. Uh, and, and, but he didn't play until the end. I think it was those Pinocchio games where he realized, oh, shit. He always played tennis at the Aubrey Rec Center. Mm-hmm. He would play doubles with women, same thing. But I don't think they had that little hut of a, a place to play Pinochle. So I think he realized there was something to this golf that had nothing between the golf clubs. I'll, I'll leave it at this also that uh, this Monday, the day of his service, uh, around Philadelphia, there are a lot of programs are, are shut down by the pandemic, high school right. programs or such, but this former player, Leonard Stewart, came up with a nice idea of, sweet idea of practicing at 530 in the morning. Uh, and a lot of programs did it. Girls programs, guys programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember St. Joe's assistants said, said that they would have done it, but they, they were just they were still quarantined right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they weren't practicing to, to do it that early. But it was just striking to me that when you think about it, that all these coaches grew up, um, you know, let's say they're your age uh, or my age, but they, they grew up under John Chaney and, but their players, I mean, now a high school player wouldn't have been born when Tom Izzo took on John Chaney um, in in the elite eight and were barely born when he retired. So they, they don't know. So, you know, trying to carry that on was what these, let's say, 30 something and 40 something coaches were, uh, were, were trying to do because it's, you know, something a little bit special. Hmm. Good stuff. Well, anytime we, uh, I wrap up this show, I, had a, I encourage our guest to uh, tell the fine folks, our listeners, maybe we'll get some Philly listeners for this. So you can throw out a recommendation. I encourage people to make sure they are, supporting their local restaurants and the bartenders and servers that work there within 
If you have to throw out a recommendation for some takeout in the Philadelphia area, what are you giving me, Mike? Well, if you, if you, if you feel like a, uh, uh, cheesesteak or, or, uh, or the just as iconic Philadelphia, uh, roast pork sandwich. John's roast pork is obvious. Delisandro's is obvious. Marvin mm-hmm. O'Connor, St. Joe's Hawk has opened his own cheesesteak joint in South Philadelphia, 19th and Reed. I gave it a complete thumbs up. I, I went to write about Marvin and uh, enjoyed it. Uh, that said, I, you know, in these pandemic times, and it, it's a, not a bad, it's one of these classic old style, go up to the stand and pay and, and go to the next window and pick up. So it's, pandemic friendly uh, Marvin's joint. Uh, you're not walking inside anywhere. Uh, and, you know, otherwise, or if you want a really good meal, you know, uh, go to Vernick. Uh, you know, that, that's, if, if people are in Philly and want want to eat well, uh, Vernick, uh, or vegetarians, veg, you don't even have to be a vegetarian. I'm not a vegetarian. It's, it's one of the great meals in Philadelphia. Mike, my man, you're the best. I appreciate your time, and I uh, I look forward to probably, I don't know, talking to you in a couple of days on the phone anyway. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. <laughs> Tip your bartenders and servers, folks. I 